morning, everybody. Welcome to Monte Carlo, the ninth Grand Prix de Monaco Historique. And this, the fourth Credit Suisse Forum, where we have a panel of legends. That's a much overused word, of course, in motorsport, but I really mean it this time. Four legends, a little bit more from them later on. First of all, I'd like to introduce to you our host for the day, the CEO of Credit Suisse Monaco, Alan Ukari. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. I hope you enjoyed your breakfast. It's a pleasure for me to welcome you at the Drivers Club. It's the third time Credit Suisse is organizing the Drivers Club during the Grand Prix Historique, and I think it's adding value to an already amazing international event in Monte Carlo. You will have um, different opportunities for photo calls today, um, but before that, there will be a panel with our colleagues, the four uh, racing colleagues that we have with us. The first photo call would be at the end of the panel when they will have a fascinating discussion about dream circuits. It will be on the other side of the driver's club and it will be at the fire corner of the club. At 12 to, um, today, Credit Suisse and the Automobile Club are happy to offer you a light lunch at the VIP lodge of uh, Credit Suisse. Make sure you wear the blue bracelet so you have access to the premises. As you know, the VIP Lodge is located um, above the grandstand T uh, on the circuit. You will also have another opportunity for a photo call. It will be when Sir Sterling Moss will go and visit the paddock of Tom Pierce in front of the 1956 winning Maserati 250. There will be uh, different opportunities for talk and interviews, all happening in the VIP Lodge. And in the box that you have received, together with some Swiss chocolate, you have all the schedule today. It's for me an opportunity again to thank my colleagues of the Automobile Club for giving us the opportunity to be partner of this event. My colleagues of uh, Credit Suisse Zurich, who have been at the initiative and have organized this uh, driver's club. And finally, the Yacht Club of uh, Monaco for giving us the opportunity to have this venue here today. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you will enjoy the racings during the weekend, and I will have the opportunity to see you again. Henry, the floor is yours. Thank you. Alan Ukari, ladies and gentlemen. Right, let me introduce the panel. I should say that uh, at the end of the forum, there'll be a chance for you to put a question to one of our four legends. Uh, so we will have one of the hostesses will be around with a microphone. So. Uh, Stick your hand up and uh, think of something searching, something that we perhaps haven't discussed during the next uh, 55 to 60 minutes or so. Okay, our panel, starting from the far end. Romain Dumas, winner with Audi at Le Mans in 2010. He's a works Porsche World Sports Car Championship driver, but he just told me outside, uh, he, I had to uh, remind myself that he's never raced at Monaco. So um, I think the other three are probably going to tease him about that. Moving on, Jochen Maas, winner of the 1975 Spanish Grand Prix. Winner of Le Mans in 1989. There isn't anything really that Jochen hasn't raced or done well in, so he'll have some uh, fascinating memories uh, in our dream circuit theme. Derek Bell, two times a world sports car champion, five times a Le Mans winner, a Ferrari Grand Prix driver, and so on and so on. And of course, a man who needs no introduction, so what I'll do is I'll give him one. Mr. Motor Racing himself, the most famous racing driver on the planet, full stop, Sir Sterling Moss. Round of applause, please, for our panel. <laughs> 
It's very much open house. I'm going to encourage the guys to um, disagree with me, interrupt me, interrupt each other, shout outs, make all sorts of bold claims and statements. We want this to be relaxing and fun. Uh, and then, as I say at the end, you can ask some questions. Roma, let me start with you. Um, you've never raced at Monaco, and you've got a bit of a problem with that, haven't you? <laughs> yeah. Hello, everybody, first of all. Yes. Uh, yeah, I realized this morning when I, I just arrived and said, Wow, it's a fair actually, it seems to be very nice to do a lap here. And uh, but the police was there, so I have to slow down a little bit. But uh, yeah, actually, I think I race a little bit around the world on a racetrack, uh, on a street, stra a street track in America, in China, or wherever you want, but never in Monaco. So yeah, I think, uh, fortunately, I'm not here on a weekend, but uh, I have to think about for the future, yeah. Jochen, you first raced here in Formula One uh, with McLaren in 1975, and you finished sixth. Then you came back in 1976 and you finished fifth. Then you came back in 1977 and you finished fourth. So why didn't you qualify in 1978? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that's horrible. <laughs> How can you say that to the guy? <laughs> Nothing to do with him. It was the car, wasn't it, Jochen? <laughs> I'm not answering that silly question. <laughs> um, Tell us about the good years. <laughs> <laughs> no, in fact, the first time I raced here was Formula 3. Formula 3 in 1972. I had, actually, I was just a works driver then for March, and um, we were in our sports program involved in St. Moritz, and um, in between, I quickly rushed down to Monza first, and then I went up again, and then later we had this race here, and it was pouring with rain, and I made it of 70 or 80 cars, I can't remember, 20 were allowed to race. So it was quite hectic, and, um, you know, just to make it into the final, and I had to leap over two cars to gain 10th place. <laughs> and I did, literally, because it was the pits on the other side and coming down um, from, the, from the tunnel, the little descent, and the chicane was after the pits. So I thought, it's now or never. And uh, the guy in front of me, of course, had the same idea to the guy in front, an Italian car. And um, so as I moved out, he moved out, and we touched wheels, and I jumped over both. And as the car landed, it was just swung around at the emergency exit or the second exit of the chicane. So I was tense. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> and um, standing on the grid, you know, 20 years last, my rear light didn't work. And um, the German commissaire who walked around there said, you can't drive, your light doesn't work, your fog light. And then a lot of Germans on his eyes said, get lost, you fool. He's lost anyway. He doesn't need a he doesn't need a tail light. <laughs> so anyway, so he said, okay. So I, he let me start, and I finished seventh in that race after having overtaken eleven in the first lap, and in the third or so I was lying fourth, and then two cars, the second and the third, tangled up in Mirabeau. You know, all these memories, of course, remain with you, and uh, tangled up in Mirabeau. And we all had to stop, and one of the two backed up to disentangle himself, and he drove over my nose. So the wings were broken and my feet stuck out. <laughs> so it wasn't so good, I had to stop quickly and we taped it up and so on. So I finished seventh finally, but it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And you know where you have now the uh, big hotel sort of um, blanking the horizon? I could still see a beautiful schooner lying outside, Creole. Huh? It was Creole then. No, 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 no. It was Creole, believe me. I knew that one. And uh, looking at it, coming down, I thought, it takes you a number of years to 
to earn enough money to buy a boat like that, which was quite true. I never managed to get that, but I got a cheaper one, which was nice too. <laughs> or the three-masted schooner, which was very nice. But, um, you know, this was, then of course the first race was for John Surtees, and unfortunately the car was very frail. Um, we had a lot of breakages, so I was very hesitant eventually, and um, I said, no, I'm not gonna race. For a young guy in Formula One, it was a decision to make. And um, I did it, and I thought, I don't have to go through all these things, you know, but um, anyway, so I boycotted, if you want, that race, and um, that was 74. And then, of course, 75 and so on, and I had a wonderful McLaren's, and um, ATS we don't talk about. And um, my very last race, I also didn't qualify. <laughs> In, uh, with a march, which was quite, it was a tire decision then because we didn't, we were running uh, Pirellis and um, they were not very good, unfortunately. So then we switched to Avon and they were a little better but not that much better and Pirelli came back for the re one remaining team running on their tires and um, they brought better tires so we didn't qualify. But, um, yeah, I always loved Monaco. You know, F Formula One was great here. And um, it, it had something. It was really something very strange. It was almost like rally driving because you drive with a lot of intuition. You know, it's not that you're looking at the guardrail at the distance, you feel it. Mm -hmm. You completely become part of the track and the rhythm of it and all that. And uh, I'm sure Sterling wasn't much um, different when you drove here. Uh, it was m a little more difficult, but you had to, you had to feel the circuit and really, you know, let yourself go. And when you drive like that, then it's fun. It's really good. And often, you know, when you go around the corner, you know how close you are. You go, okay, okay, nothing happened. You wait for. Did everyone maybe get a picture of that? Light touch. Everyone's got a picture of that. Do that. Do that again. How does it go? No, no, they've taken pictures already. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to overdo that. <laughs> a lot of silly pictures of me in existence, so we don't have to embroider on that one. <laughs> um, Derek, you first came here in the late 60s. You finished on the podium uh, in the Formula 3 Grand Prix in your little privately entered Brabham against the might of the, the works mattress. Uh, good memories of Monte Carlo? Yeah, yeah, moderately. I mean, like Jochen, there's something spe special about racing here. It's one of the, the most famous racetracks. As there are several that we all want to race at during our career. Oh, sorry. Can't you hear at the very back? You can move forward, Adolfo, if you can. He's heard all my stories anyway. But, um, no, uh, we came here with a, with a Formula 3 Lotus in 66 on my first visit. And, of course, there'd be 80 cars out there all trying to get into the 25-car race or whatever. And so by a series of elimination during heats and one thing or another, they ended up with these 25 cars. And that's basically how it started. And I was having a very good year with the Formula 3 Brabham with Felde Engineering. And uh, of course, but we had to compete with these damn French cars called Matras. And um, so we were, uh, I'm forgetting the first year, because I'm 66, believe me. So to so say 67 this was with the Brabham. And um, we had an amazing race. There were several accidents. I remember my teammate got his arm, ended up in hospital. He had a big crash at the chicane. Uh, Matt Daghorn went into hospital. And, and anyway, I, I was finished third behind the mattress. And it was a great race, very exciting, as always, as you can imagine around here. And you're trying all you can to beat the French cars, but it never happened. And we were talking about Matra early. And of course, 
you know, Matra dominated Formula 3, they then dominated Formula 2, and they basically dominated Formula 1 for a year for Jackie Stewart to win the championship. And they, then he, they went to Le Mans, and they, they won Le Mans three years in a row, seven, do we say 72, 3, and 4. And then in 75, Jackie and I won it with the Mirage because Matra quit. And so they were always there in front, which were, you know, not allowing a lot of us to win races. But it, nevertheless, racing here was very, very special. And then I think, although it meant a lot to us to race here because it was a jewel in the crown to do well at, um, I actually came here in 72 with a very f infamous um, Italian car called a Techno. And I'm sorry to the Italian gentleman here, but it really was a lousy car. And uh, we came here and... This is the car you jumped, well, it was the best thing to do with it, was to jump over it. And um, so, uh, you know, for lots of my dear Italian journalist friends say, oh, you must tell us about the, mat uh, about the uh, Techno. And I said, if, there was a, if I ever had a Formula, Formula One career blossoming, the Techno made sure it didn't go any further. And uh, I came here to Monaco to drive it, and I was all ready and sweating, ready to get in it, and the car never turned up because it wasn't completed. So... That shows you what racing was like in those days. It wouldn't have done any testing anyway. And then it didn't turn up for practice, so I never raced. So I actually never came to Monaco again until today. So <laughs> it was a pretty miserable 30 years, actually. <laughs> and you wish you'd uh, done a Grand Prix around here, I suppose? Yeah, who wouldn't? I mean, it, it, I mean, if you're in the right car, as Jochen said, you know, you're scrubbing around on crappy tyres and you, you just can't do it. But if the car is right around here, and I'm sure Sterling's going to tell us when it was right, uh, it was, must be magnificent to be in form as a great driver and then in a great car and to go out and do a super job because the satisfaction in winning here, you go into the history books. To me, there are three great races. One is the Monaco Grand Prix, the second is the Le Mans 24 hour, and the third is the Indy 500, or used to be. I don't think it's quite as much as it used to be, but I think those three, certainly in my history, in my life, were the three races that you could hang your hat on if you won. So, Sterling, you won here three times, uh, in 1956 for Maserati and in 1960 and 61 for Lotus. That first victory for Maserati, uh, what memories do you have of, of, of that special moment? Well, uh, I mean, uh, of course, I was driving the car every week because we were racing it all the weeks, but Monaco is very special. And to come here and have the, the public, you can see them so easily and uh, it's such a wonderful circuit and... Uh, uh, actually, I came here first time in 19 in 1950 with a 500 cc, which which particularly with Formula Three then, and of course suited the car. And uh, one thing I'd like to tell you is I remember coming. Uh, we practiced because it was Formula Three. It was a, the, the less important race. It was a Grand Prix, and this one as a curtain racer for a 500 cc car, Formula Three. And uh, we were very early in the morning practicing, and then came back and I said to Peter Collins. Uh, how about us going and getting coffee in, in the Hotel de Paris? So Pete said, OK, let's go there. And we got there, there was a dear old English lady. And she said, uh, were you one of those young men making all that noise? So we said, yes. She said, well, what are you doing? We said, we were practicing. She said, can't you go and practice somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> so sums up the local lady's <laughs> idea. She's still, what, she's still what, there, apparently. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, it's... it's, it's, it's it's a ma magic circuit, and, and I think whatever you're driving, the great thing about it is that it equalizes an enormous amount. I mean, if you've got an excess of power, you can't use as much as you can with other, you know, other circuits. And so I think it's, it's just really, it's, it's the jewel in the, cr in the crown. Did you find you had to adapt your driving style for the, the, the very specific nature of this circuit, rather than some of the sort of faster sweeping road circuits? 
Uh, not particularly. I mean, the thing was, with, with my first time I did it, of course, with the 500, it was very easy to the, the, go through the tunnel flat and so on. But uh, I think that the most important thing, really, was not to break the car. And um, Because I raced for Rob Walker, and they would never sell us a new car, so I, I had a car which was one year uh, out of date, which was rather annoying. Um, but um, it, it gave more, to me anyway, it, it pleased me more to beat the new ones with the last year's car. So that way. And also the other thing is, of course, you can see people. I mean, I can remember going down to the Metropole. There was a very cute looking girl with sort of pale pink lipstick on. And I remember blowing her a kiss each lap, you know. Uh, but it, it was, it, that's the great thing. It's such, such a personal sort of place. We can't see drivers do that these days with the high cockpit size and the full face helmets. They're yeah. probably doing it. Who knows? Well, I, no, yeah, I don't think they have the same thought, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, can't, we'll, we'll hear some more from Sir Sterling about his uh, Monaco memories uh, as we go through. But our theme, of course, is Dream Circuits. So let's generically open up the panel and talk about other great circuits. Romain, great circuits for you. Well, you know, for sure... Uh, when you see this gentleman, uh, it was uh, completely different on the 20, 15 years ago. I have to say I enjoy a lot of the circuit in America because they still have a lot of uh, character that we don't see so much now in, uh, in Europe. If you look now, the new Formula One track are yeah, not so, yeah, even on TV, it's not so exciting. So I would say, okay, Norsch life in Europe is for sure the, the most famous one, the most crazy one the ones they were able to drive in Formula 1. So now we are doing the 24 hours there, but that's uh, the best you can find in Europe for me. And the best uh, in US would be uh, Road America, who is still uh, almost poor also, who are both with a very fast corner, with a lot of elevation. You need, you need, you know, blind corner, you need fast corner, you need bumpy corner, you need a little bit of this uh, all kind of track, you know, gi you give you give a, a crazy feeling when you have now our prototype with more than uh, 4G on a corner. You, you need to feel even more some stuff. And that's, uh, yeah, that's what you need. Even Le Mans, for sure, it's special. But uh, it's not the Le Mans that they knew from the past, for sure. Do you think modern circuits are too safe? I th I uh, obviously, you, you grew up in a safe know, era. It's always a question of, uh, yeah, you, you can, it's never safe enough, you know, uh, for sure. When you see what they made, when you see, when I won Le Mans 2010, we only beat the the, the record of the distance was uh, from the 917, from the, and it took uh, more than 20 years to beat this record. On this time, they have no chicane on straight; they go at 350. So yeah, you can say now it's safer, but look, last year Le Mans we had a terrible accident from one uh, Danish driver, Alan Simonson. So for sure, when you are None of none of us expect you know to have a crash and to have a big accident, so it's n it's never safe enough. Joachim, Derek, d did you guys, uh, when you were at the height of your powers, did you th were you concerned about safety? Did you ever drive around thinking, hang on a minute, this is dangerous? <laughs> well, I had actually great misgivings with uh, Le Mans, and uh, one of the reasons really why I didn't uh, drive with Jackie there and uh, was Derek um, driving with him. Um, was a safety issue. And because my very first race was 72, and in 72, Joachim Bonnier died because he hit another car, which had little to do with the circuit as such, except the great speeds, which were fine with me. I didn't worry about that. But nevertheless, um, it was sort of a bit strange to have a mixture of very fast prototypes 
and touring cars. I drove a Ford Capri, and I was constantly hanging on my mirror, glued to it, not to be in the way of the fast prototypes. I was doing, let's say, 270 top speed, which wasn't that quick. And of course, the prototypes were doing 340, 350. So it was, it was really unpleasant. And um, I thought going down the straight one, you know, on Sunday morning at uh, four or five o'clock, I thought I wish the damn thing would blow up. And it <laughs> did me the favor, it blew up. And I walked back to the pits, I said, it's broken. <laughs> and, <I> said, <laughs> and they said, um, oh, you drive the other one. Yeah, I said, hmm. <laughs> so Jerry Birrell, who I drove with, said, don't you want to drive? And I said, no, would you like? He said, yes, I would love to. So he drove <laughs> instead of me. But um, that was something I always felt was not quite right in Le Mans, the 24 hours. You know, on Friday, you always looked in the crowd of drivers for the, from the, uh, at the briefing, and I thought, who is it this time? The guardrails were too low, and they were not fixed properly in the ground, so when the car hit them, 200 meters or whatever fell over, and the cars were launched usually into the woods behind, and so on. So that was very ungood, let's put it that way. And, um, you know, I, I told them, and the pits were too narrow, and then, and of course, over the years, everything was changed, and it's great now. But um, at the time, it wasn't. And of course, I don't want to look further back, you know, when you all drove it in the 60s, because with the old, very fast uh, Maison Blanche corners and all that, and we're going past the pits at a million miles an hour. So that was something else, of course, again. But um, so I still had a good idea what it was like, except that we had some unfortunate guardrails. But, you know, racing in those days were generally a safety issue. Jackie Stewart. Um, was the first one to come up with some pretty good ideas what it should look like and he was really pushing very hard to have the circuits made safer. I mean when we had uh, this uh, Montjuic race in Barcelona and we had an accident there which had in fact little to do with the guardrails once again it was an accident between two cars and one was launched over the over the armco and it killed a few people so that was uh, but not spectators it was people who were in an area where they shouldn't have been but um, the guardrails we very nearly didn't have a race because the guardrails were there but the balls and nuts were missing so they were stuck together like a lego um, play thing so the teams went around in fact and tried to secure it better and all that. So we had long discussions amongst the drivers. Um, shall we or shall we not race? So I suggested being as one of the young ones, um, at least in racing, not by years, but <laughs> um, I said, why don't we just drive, but demonstratively slow? Good idea, we do that. Now the flag dropped and there was, everybody took off like crazy. The two Ferraris had each other off in the first corner. And I thought, what did we just talk about? It was quite puzzling. And this, ironically, that's the race I won, my one and only Grand Prix victory. So it was quite a farce in many ways. But, um, you know, Barcelona as such, Montjuic, was a beautiful circuit. You know, had it been treated right, it would have been mm. an equal to Monaco, no doubt about it. It was a lovely track. Mm. Um, you raced there too, the quite often, Formula 2. Mm. Did you, was safety something that you were worried about, Derek, uh, just with hindsight looking yeah, at Yeah, very much. Well, <clears throat> yes, we did, because, um, you know, but it's something we grew up with, and I grew up before he did, and just after Sterling did. So 
Um, you know, I think it was really very, very dangerous in those days. Um, but you just seem to accept to a certain degree that, you know, people were going to get hurt and cars were going to crash. The thing was, was to try and get in a car that wouldn't break. And uh, I th you then tried to drive within the car and not hit things. If you didn't hit things, basically, you wouldn't have a crash. Well, obviously, <laughs> if around Monaco, of course, people would be inclined to make you have a crash because they'd push you off and other places. So safety was an issue. And I remember Jochen with the Grand Prix Drivers Association then and Jackie Stewart, and we used to go to places. But, you know, I remember it vividly, Jochen. We were at Daytona uh, driving together or in the same team. And I remember we, we said they've got to do something about that chicane. They can't just leave it like it is with the holes for the, the, IndyCar dri uh, the NASCAR drivers didn't like holes in the ground on the side of the because we had to have a chicane in to put the poles in. And, but unfortunately, we, I remember it so well. He and I said, we've got to do something about it. But it was after the race. And we said, we must do that for next year. Yeah, we're going to make sure that next year we, um, you know, we get this safety issue right, that they will have these holes and they'll put a paving stone over the top or whatever, you know, fill it up with something uh, when the NASCAR guys came. But unfortunately, of course, we would do nothing by next year. We'd do the race next year and say, gosh, we must do that for next year because that's mm. dangerous. <laughs> and, <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, it we would, things would happen. And the GPDA with, with Jackie, I have to say, and but remember, he lost a lot of his close teammates. We didn't have quite that experience. And I think Jackie got fed up with going to funerals. And um, so, you know, by the very fast, they did put guardrails in. And they weren't always the answer, because as Jochen said, they weren't always put up very, very well. But certainly danger was a factor. But uh, in my own defense, I have to say, I think I was lucky to drive such great teams that safety wasn't an issue with the car. Having said that, my first sports car was a 917. And anybody that saw a 917, you know, we were doing 396 kilometers down Mulsanne. And our feet were in front of the center line of the front wheels. And people say, how did you do that? And, and I remember Montoya last year at, at, <clears throat> at Daytona. He said, you drove that like that? You mean you drove that sort of car? How dangerous. And you, but in those days, we just did it because well, there were 100 other guys. He would have done it, and he would have done it, and so would he if they'd been offered the drive. I can see factory Porsche sports car driver <laughs> Roman Duma just thinking, what? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I know this car. I mean, they are. They are more than hero, you know, when uh, at the Porsche Museum, uh, it happened a lot of time, you know, each two, three times per year that I have to drive the, the car, like like he just mentioned, you know, this 917 and so on. You know, we don't even speak, now we are complaining about, you know, engine lag, turbo response, you know, small things like that. When you drive this car, you go on power. Before the Apex, you only count one, two, Three, okay, the power are there. And when they are coming, it's uh, 900 horsepower, and the, the safety was clearly not there. But for sure, it's it's different time. But uh, listen, story like that for a young driver, I mean young, a little bit less now, but uh, <laughs> for a driver from Le Mans, uh, yeah, you, you, us, you know, in I drove 11 times Le Mans. It was last year, unfortunately, the first big accident. For them, it was, we cannot say, each race, but nearly. There were, there, were, there were plenty, but I think, you know, you've got to get down to it that um, a Grand Prix is two hours, and we were doing 24. All right, two drivers in those days when men were women, were men, but, and, uh, you know, we would literally, we'd do 12 hours each, two hours on, two hours off, and so on. So we did six Grand Prix every 24-hour race. All right, somebody's going to say, but it wasn't as, as hectic as Formula One. It was, really, because we were driving through the night, through fog, through rain, smoke, all the rest of it, 
and also people that probably shouldn't have been driving out there at all. So we, we had a pretty lot of, we had a lot of nightmares uh, driving around the Le Mans 24 hour race in that era. But we did it because it was such a challenge. And also at the end of it, we drove wonderful cars. And as I said, I was lucky enough to drive mainly for Porsche. And then on top of that, of course, um, when you won the race, you had won the Le Mans 24 hour. And it was pretty special. You say when men were men, brings me nicely back to Sir Sterling Moss, of course. Um, safety for you, Sir Sterling, was just a, a, a something that you just had to get on with. I mean, you you drove in a fantastically no, I, uh, dangerous. One, one of the reasons I, I went into racing was because it was dangerous. I mean, when you're when you're a young kid of 18 or 19 years old, to do something dangerous is, is brave, and you know you feel proud about it. And I must say that if racing has been as safe as it is today, I don't know if I'd have done it. I'd have looked for an alternative. Is um, that just to sort of the way society has changed as a whole? Because you you couldn't have that attitude now, could you, as, as a young racing driver? You what do you mean? You mean the attitude we had in the back in the early yeah, days. Yeah, sort of a stiff upper lip, get on with it, that's yeah, how yeah, it is. No, yeah, no, that wouldn't be all right. I mean, it isn't, it isn't realistic to think the drivers will die. I mean, <coughs> we've, we've now got such fantastic cars and everything, and thank God the, the good news is we haven't thank had you. a death in Formula One for 20 years, which is, which is remarkable. I mean, we used to lose three, three or four drivers every year, and that, that was something that uh, you know, we're all scared about, but, that, but it nevertheless added, I suppose, to the excitement of taking part. D um, uh, did you find that um, for their time, the cars were, were relatively safe? I mean, compared with road uh, cars, If you didn't course. drive a Lotus, yes. Um, I mean, <laughs> I had about five wheels fall off, and not because I hit anything until it fell off. But, but uh, no, in those days, we hadn't got the materials, we hadn't got the knowledge, the experience, and so on, and therefore we drove the best that we could get. And, and uh, uh, so, for quite a long time after the war, very few people, Barani, were about the only people who built something specially for racing, and that were the wheels. And all right, you've got racing brake linings and so on, but it was quite a while before cars got, you know, caught up to what it should have been. Did you just drive thinking it's not going to happen to me? Was that the yes. mentality? Yeah, I mean, um, the trouble is if it did happen, you know, what are you going to do next time? I, I can remember. Uh, going to, I think it was Portugal or somewhere like that, where the really, fa really fast downhill curves with trees every f 10 yards or something. And going down there, and I suddenly thought, God, if a wheel comes off, and I was driving a Lotus, if a wheel comes off, and it's a fa fairly good odds, hopefully that it doesn't, uh, you know, I'm going to be in real trouble here. But, that, but that's what a driver's paid for, is to say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm going to think of the better things and so on, where I can catch the, the, the guys in front of me or leave them behind or whatever it is. Those Lotus you raced here and won in, they were okay, weren't they? They, they, they held where together. you were. The, they held together. The, 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 the trouble is that the, the, what people didn't realise, I think, at that time was that the better adhesion you had, and we, we obviously only had lateral G, we didn't have downforce, but the more adhesion you have, obviously the more strain through the chassis. And, you know, the better road holding a car was, the more you could stress the parts, you know, that, that mattered, like wishbones and stuff. And, and, and the Lotus, I mean, I remember I, I um, actually won the U.S. Grand Prix in 61, and uh, they, it was my birthday, and they gave me a cake. And I can remember quite well cutting the front wheel off and giving it to Colin. Uh, he didn't think I was funny. I thought it was bloody amusing, actually. Uh, but there we are. He, he has a different sense of humour. And the other thing about your era is you raced anything, anytime, anywhere. Yeah. You jump yeah. out of a Grand Prix car into a sports car, into a, into, a, into a tin top. So you greatly increased the chances 
of having an accident? Yeah, well, I, I was doing 52 races a year, and uh, you know, just on, on sheer numbers, I suppose, it makes it more likely. But uh, I think to be a racing driver, you have to be a bit crazy anyway, you know, if you're going to do what people do. I mean, it amazes me what they're Di doing now with, with the modern like. cars. It's fantastic. I mean, the, those Audis and things are absolutely incredible. I mean, it must be wonderful car to drive that you have, absolutely. It must be terrific. Oh, really. well, not he's driving, yeah. yeah. I must just butt in there because Sterling's certainly right about, but I remember so well in the very early days, I went off and did the Tasman series with Chris Amon and we drove Ferrari Formula One cars, basically, but with the Dino engine. And there was, there was J Chris and I in the Ferraris, there was Jochen Rint and Graham Hill in the Lotuses, and there was Piers Courage and a Bra Frank Williams Brab and Frank Gardner, and obviously the local Australian drivers. And it was a wonderful series. We did seven races. You did it, didn't you, yeah. Tasman? And we did four races yeah. down New Zealand and then three down Australia in seven weeks. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant time to be there. Dead, you know, a lot of laughs, a lot of fun. And then the racing was coincidental, but, you know, we had some great races. But I remember sitting around, obviously, as a group of you, and I got to know those other drivers because I'd only just really got into Formula One. It was 69. And to get to know these people that were sort of heroes of mine and people I, I uh, admired a lot. And I remember Jochen was just about to join Lotus. And, um, it's not me, it's Jochen Rint. Yes, Jochen Rint, sorry. <laughs> and, uh, and is, you know, we're all going, yeah, but of course, if we had an offer, you know, none of, I, you know, I said, I wouldn't go in a bloody Lotus. And Chris said, you wouldn't get me in a Lotus. And Jochen said, nor me either. And Pierce, we all said the same thing. But of course, at the end of the day, he was, which is really what we're all talking about, is that Jochen got the chance to drive a Lotus, which could win in the world championship. And that's why you did it, because you could win. I drove a 917, because I knew it was the best car in the world. And so he drove an Audi, knowing it was the best. He was fortunate it was a much safer car. But even they, you still had Rex testing, and people had major accidents. But Derek succumbed to the German charm, you know, from Stuttgart. Yeah. So well, they couldn't understand my German. That's why so they couldn't understand what I was saying and moaning. But there was nothing to moan about in those days. But that's the truth of it. We wanted to win. And this is the thing I try to get over today to you know, the FIA and people that one spends time with now as you're an older, older person, is that we're still racing drivers and we want to race. That guy there wants to race and win races. He doesn't want to have to back off on the straight to save fuel. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, bloody yeah. ridiculous. You should be out there driving flat out. We're racing drivers and the public come to watch a race. That means guys going hell for leather, not having to back off because they're going to run out 20 minutes before the end of the 24 hours. A question for, for, for all of you, really, spanning the, the eras. Do you think the public wants to see an element of danger? Do people go to motor racing to see a few spills? Nobody wants to see anyone get hurt. They want to see spins. They want yeah, to see I people knocking into each other, don't they? I think they like to go and watch drivers and know that the drivers yeah. are trying really hard because they nearly lose it or occasionally yeah. one does. And I think that I don't think they want to see anybody hurt because no. it, it, we, it's shown that if there's a big accident somewhere, a certain amount of people will leave. leave. But I think they want to see people nearly get hurt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so can't always guarantee that. <laughs> which is a bit Didn't difficult. You, yeah. I mean, your era, everybody nearly got hurt all the time, <laughs> yes. didn't they? Yeah. It's a very fine line. <laughs> yes. But that's what it was engaging, you see. Yeah. I think the thing, too, is that w it's a pity we have to talk about danger all the time, but it is there all the time. Um, but, I, you know, w when you have a teammate have an accident, and Jochen and I have had this with teammates within the Porsche team, that died, and the, uh, my first year at Porsche in the 917, both Rodriguez and Sifford both got killed. Not in sports cars. 
well, actually, Pedro was killed in a sports car, but not in, a, in one of our races. And, and of course, Joe died in Formula One. But I mean, that was it. You know, it was really super dangerous, but we carried on. And no good saying to me or any of us, why did you carry on? You carried on because you were driving and doing something that you were very privileged to be doing, and you loved it, and you might win races. And when somebody died, as much as you hated losing anybody you sort of knew moderately well, that's why we never got close to each other in those days, because you knew that sort of thing happened. It wasn't because we were mean and horrible, it's just that you didn't want to get close. Even though the off-track camaraderie was much greater, you kept a distance between teammates and rivals, but actually you all partied hard, didn't you? Well, I, I wouldn't say we did when we... <laughs> we didn't, did we, Joachim? You look like you did, but I mean, you know. No, no, <laughs> Joachim Mas was James Hunt's teammate at McLaren. Yeah, well, there you go, you see. I mean, he spent time with James Hunt, you can tell, didn't he? You know. I spent time with Jackie Hicks, who's a very religious man, of course, but um, no, I'm joking. So. But no, it was, um, I mean, we had great times, though, didn't we? we? I mean, it was good. I mean, but yeah, I know you had, but um, I can't speak for myself, but, um, you know. You're such a fibber, you're No, look, I mean, it was quite <laughs> obvious in a <laughs> way because the racing was more dangerous. You had more accidents. Um, that why, that's why the span of race drivers, the lifespan, but not literally lifespan, but his activity span over the years was much shorter than today. So usually when you hit the mid-30s, it was time to get out. And because it was an accumulation of dangerous moments which finally convinced you that enough's enough, and now it's good to stop while you're still around, this sort of thing. And of course today, when race cars are so much better than they ever were, um, you can be in it still with 40 and, and much later and so on. I mean, we also still race with 40, 45, but in sports cars, thinking that this would be safe, but of course it wasn't, <laughs> it was also dangerous, but um, we just you know, thought it was better than uh, Formula One. And um, you know, that's why we hung on. But um, Formula One was really usually 35, 36 was the end of it, oh, right? definitely, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, it's the approach, your mental approach towards racing. I mean, you accepted it. You accepted the danger. You thought about it sometimes when you were sitting in a quiet moment at home. But um, it really didn't bother you much. You just knew it could bite you but uh, hoping that it wouldn't. This was basically the attitude. And I think everybody here on the table thinks exactly the same. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. No, exactly. And um, you love what you're doing. You have the confidence in yourself that you can do it. You have the confidence in the teams. And that was the biggest factor, really, which was sometimes a bit disturbing. If you didn't have the confidence in your mechanical outfit, then um, you thought, maybe I shouldn't do it. You know, there are examples for that, which I don't want to bring up now, but um, there was always something you had in mind. Nothing forced you to do it. So if you felt it was wrong, don't do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. just back out of it and say, this is not the end of the tether. I can always go sailing again. <laughs> that was my sort of attitude. I was in a, on boats before, and I thought, if it bothers you too much, don't do it. Mm. Go sail. So, right? <laughs> Right, that's enough danger and heartache and sadness. Let's make it more cheery. Um, Roma, uh, circuits that have a real atmosphere, not just in terms of great circuits to drive around, the circuits that, that have everything. And you've raced in America and Europe. We, we, who does it best? Well, it's, uh, 
It's completely different if you look. I mean, the, it, I am sure it was the same on the past. Depends where you are going. You can feel different atmosphere, spectator. Take an example, if you go to Silverstone, if you go to UK, even in uh, our sports car now, uh, let's say, uh, uh, saying that we have to back off on a straight to take care of the fuel, you know. You can, the car not noisy anymore like they were in the past. But if you go to England, you will always find, you know, really crazy fun, you know. The fun from Porsche were the same 30, 40 years ago when Derek was driving. Now we are back. It's the same kind of guy who are coming with all pictures of 917, 956, 962, and they are still following Porsche. And this is typical in England. If you go to Belgium, also they are completely, you know, they, they like a lot the, the, the sports cars race. And uh, this is, I think you feel this atmosphere on this track that they still crazy about endurance and they still crazy about, uh, yeah, really a brand, you know, the Porsche brand. It's in this case, it's what they follow more than the driver, we have to say. And uh, okay, Le Mans, it's always special because you have a mix of everything. Uh, but for the rest, you know, all this new Bahrain, Dubai, all this new stuff, for sure, it's a little bit different. They have to learn a little bit. We have to say it's all new. So possible it's, uh, <coughs> it will be good in uh, some years. So far, it's quite, uh, yeah, they don't have, uh, let's say, the experience. They don't have the philosophy of endurance. It's more the show. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you, have to, you have to learn with that. You have to do a championship with that, for sure. That's the future. But for sure, it's not there that uh, you can see the, the, the fun and the, the atmosphere. Jochen. Circuits with atmosphere, who for you? Uh, the atmosphere I find was always very important. It either puts you in a good mood, in a race mood, and you really like it, or it puts you off a little bit and you think, I hope this weekend goes over quick. But um, the atmosphere of a track was what? It was often, naturally, the circuit's topography, you know, where you really liked it. And it was, of course, the spectators in a certain way. It was, uh, you know, the general atmosphere created by the history of the circuit you were at and so on. So I feel, or I, I thought then it was quite important, and I'm sure you felt pretty much the same, no? Yeah. Derek, yeah. fi uh, 50,000 Brits at Le Mans cheering for British drivers and British cars must have been special. Well, it was a bugger because I was in a German car, so I didn't get them shouting for me at all. <laughs> it was only after about three hours when Alan de Cadenet's car broke. And, uh, and so on, and the other Brits fell out that they realized there was a Brit in a, in a German car and he was doing quite well. So then the flag started to wave a little bit coming over the Dunlop Bridge and down the hill and he went, they're still here and that's, that was what made it. But to be honest, I must say, I think the track which had the greatest atmosphere still holds it is Sebring. Sebring is a 12-hour race, Sterling, I think you won there, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. He run there, I actually never did. I did once, unofficially, but anyway. Um, but. I never. I came second numerous times with Al Holbert, and it would, I raced there 18, 19 times. And the first time I went there, well, I was in the 917, of course, which the only time it ever broke. And I remember flying out the back with Mar Andretti behind me in the works Ferrari, and the suspension collapsed. And I went out on the runways where the planes were with barbed or wire all wrapped around the car. And Ar Mario came after me, and he said, "He said, God, that was that was all. You know, that, are you all right?" Sort of thing. And I got out of the car, and we both said, "What the hell are we doing here?" And that was, that was 1971, and I've been back every year pretty well almost ever, ever since. But it's not just the track, and that's what we were talking about a bit earlier. 
is there's some classic named tracks. You know, you've got the Mans, you've got Monaco, you've got the tw you've got 24 hours of Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring, you've got the Nurburgring 1,000 kilometers, and certain races that have a special history. But Sebring, it, I think, is totally unique. You get to 150,000 people there. They go even if there's not a race on. You know, because they hear the date, the middle of March, we've got to go. And one year they had a go-kart race because nobody would turn up because the rules or something, and they still got 35,000 people. But they turn up with their motorhomes, and they're all out in the middle there, and, and it, they call it the zoo. And you have to go out there in incognito, because if you go out as a driver, you're, you're raped with any luck. And <laughs> <coughs> so you go out there, and it's the most amazing atmosphere. There's, there's you know, barbecues cooking all night. And that's just the, that side of it. And the, the things that people come up and say to you is unbelievable. You don't know whether they're drunk or they're on drugs. And people are going by on trucks, which are 20 foot high with that couches on the top. And they're all on those girls then flipping out their boobs to sort of show everybody there's a bit of activity around here. I mean, unbelievable. It's only when he came by. Yeah, but you're right. You were there too. Why do you think you went and worked in America with me? So, and, and, and then on top of that, um, you race on this track, which... In the old days, you've been on it, haven't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Same. It's the same right now. Yeah, it's I the mean, same right now, exactly. The zoo is still there. Huh? <coughs> it's still there. But they've shortened the track quite a lot. And I have to say, even in my own, I actually still hold the fastest lap ever there, but that's sort of totally irrelevant. But I have to say it now and again. But, I mean, that place, because we didn't have as many corners as they have now, but I think the track was longer because we carried on further around. But it was so unbelievably fast. And you go out there at night, and I remember going through the first time ever at night, having gone through in the daylight, and I arrived out the back at, at the end of a warehouse straight, and I'm going, well, there was a right turn here earlier. That's exactly where one guy got lost for half an hour. Yeah. It's no joke. Yeah. He was meandering around in the back. He was halfway to Orlando, wasn't and he? And he couldn't find the road anymore. <coughs> yeah, exactly. He couldn't find it's the right taxiway to, to lead him back to the racetrack. Yeah. And he just stopped and well, he looked. Well, the straw bales disappeared. And they were there in the afternoon, and you came out, took over from Joe in, in the evening session, in the dark session, went out, and I went, ah, oh, straight down, you remember, hang a straight between the buildings, and uh, you knew you turned right when you ran out of buildings. And you started to turn right, and you went, hell, where the hell did the corner go? And by then, but they were doing 160 miles an hour, and you're going, but I don't know where to go now. And you're groping around looking for a bit of runway, hoping you wouldn't run into any planes. And that was part of it. And then on top of it, it's so rough. I mean, it beats the cars to death. And we all reckon if you can win the 12 hours at Sebring, Daytona, Le Mans is, is easy to, to, to win mechanically for the car and also for the driver. But it was an amazing, it's such an atmosphere. And it's still the same today, I promise you. Sterling, what so about you should atmosphere? Go, Sterling, atmosphere for you, the, some of the circuits that had the best atmosphere. I, I guess Monaco was one of them. I think I put Monaco very high. I think the great thing about Monaco is you can see people, you know, you know where they're staying and all this sort of stuff. And uh, they're very enthusiastic. And, and I always felt that Monaco was the home of proper road racing. Pescara. Yeah, Pescara. Yeah, Pescara yeah. was a fantastic Longest circuit. ever circuit to host a World Championship Grand yeah. Prix. Yeah, it was a tremendous circuit. I mean, luckily the van was always behaving when I drove it, so it suited me, but uh, that was a really good circuit, though. Really good. Did you find racing at home? Did you find racing in England had a special sort of ambiance? Yeah, because obviously one has one's own fans who are more likely to be in England than, say, in Germany. Although Germany, mind you, is so keen. Very, they, they are, I think I get as many fans from Germany um, as, any, as the, the others put together, probably. Uh, we'll have some questions from the floor. and We've got about 10 minutes left. I just want to quickly ask the guys, your favourite circuit, on the spot, favourite circuit, and what you'd most like to be charging around it in. 
Well, for me, yeah, it's clear it's uh, Norschleif. I mean, it's, it's the most crazy ones that you can find now in uh, in our generation of driver. And uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a kind of track, you know. Uh, Le Mans and Norschleif. It's both tracks that when you are a driver from our generation, that you know when you are going there that something can happen. I mean, in terms of, you know, you have to respect the track. Mm -hmm. uh, when you are in Le Mans right now, or North Life, uh, when you are doing the 24 hour during the night or whatever, during the day, you know that if something is getting wrong, you know, a puncture, uh, a, a, a wing, you know, problem or whatever, you know that can happen something bad. And you also keep Always this in mind doesn't mean that you back off, you know, <laughs> you, you drive 120%, but it's a track that you have to respect. And uh, if you compare on this time, now we have we have a sensor all around the car about suspension, about tires uh, pressure. We have everything inside the car on a, on a steering wheel. We, we know what is the pressure on the tires and so on, but it's you need to have this because you know that as soon as you will get something wrong, Something can happen, and normally it's uh, never a good end. <laughs> Jochen, your favorite track? <coughs> well, it's uh, pretty much the Nürburgring in, in many ways because of its sheer um, spectacular setup, yeah, obviously. But I liked Spa, the old Spa, yeah. which was too dangerous then, but the old Spa was, was really exhilarating, you know, long straights and so on. But, um, you know, there are lots of tracks in the States which I like. You know, the old Silverstone I liked a lot too. And um, Monaco for different reasons, I explained it before. But um, my favorite track to name one would be really the Nürburgring. Comes up, doesn't it, time and time yeah. again, Derek? It's probably very close to the top of your list as well, I guess. Oh, definitely, yeah. We raced there so much. I remember when Jochen beat me on the last lap in Formula 2. Do you remember? I didn't, oh, no, I didn't want to say it. I didn't <laughs> want to say it. You were, of course. Right. Run, I, I never bloody won on the Nürburgring. He never, ever could win, and I'd be on pole position, lead the race, whatever it was, in sports, cars, whatever it was, Formula 2, and I'm just there about to win. Yeah, but you were in the techno. Takes. You just rubbished. You no, know, I wasn't in the techno. I no, was you weren't? No, I wasn't. What was it? Oh, God, no. no it I was, was a techno. You were in a techno. No, I was in, in a Brabham, which had a misfire. I had to point that out. Anyway. Uh, <coughs> and uh, so job those Group C races they did together were so long. Yeah, enough time for the pickering. No, to me, the Nürburgring is the most amazing track in the world. And when people ask me, have all my life, it's been Nürburgring and Spa, the old Spa. Even the new one is pretty special. But the old one on the full circuit was unbelievable. Um, and then, of course, I think as far as America's concerned, Elkhart Lake, which um, Roman mentioned, which is I still think is the greatest challenge. Remember, yeah. in America, they haven't ruined them and cosmetically, ch clinically changed them. Their tracks are still basically the same and almost as rough, aren't they? And Sterling, what, uh, what stands <coughs> out for I, you? Just because they're pinching all the best ones, I put in the Tower Florio. Yeah, well, we I think the yeah, target yeah. <laughs> <The target laughs> Florio, Florio, you know, 42 miles a lap. one nil to you, frankly. And it was really, a, was, yeah. you could learn the circuit. Took quite a while to learn it, but you had to learn it. <clears throat> and you had to go around the night before because they go around repairing the, the circuit. And that means for an Italian to throw a bit of gravel and a bit of tar on top, and that's it. So you had to go around finding where they'd done this, this around the circuit, actually the night before the race. So it was a fantastic... Um, and s s I think, that, again, is a, it was a circuit that would equalise drivers mm. and cars. 
you, know, <coughs> you could do better there with a bad car than many other places. I guess you'd want to be in the 300 SLR around there. Oh, and I must say that that has to be the greatest sports car ever built anywhere. I mean, to, to take what the, the, uh, the uh, 300 SLR would take is remarkable, really. I mean, it would ne never broke, no problems at all. And anything you wanted, of course, driving for Mercedes in those days, anything you wanted, if you'd said, I want to try square wheels, I'm sure they'd look up in the big book and say, we tried it and it vibrated too badly. Yeah. You know, they know, knew everything about racing. Okay. Um, Ellie here has got a microphone, so if there's anything you want to put to the, uh, to the panel, <coughs> uh, try to keep it on topic. We're, our theme is Dream Circuits, of course. Joachim, can I ask a question? We're making a documentary on the Mantra racing cars, both the uh, single-seaters and the Le Mans cars. Uh, Derek has made some comments about Mantra cars. Uh, you raced against them, I believe. Any views on the, the Mantra racing team and the cars? You know, I mean, the Porsches were magic. 956s and 962s, probably the best race cars of decades. Aerodynamically very advanced, it was beautiful. They were solid, they were good cars. Except we also had accidents there with Stefan Belov, of course, and, uh, <coughs> and Winkelhock, who died shortly, one after the other, in these cars. So it was the nature of... Uh, but you know the Mercedes then of course the C9, C11 and the uh, uh, C291 they were fabulous cars and they were modern cars, they were carbon fiber and they were strong chassis and of course they were better, they were advanced and they were in many ways they were sort of the next generation of sports cars but you know sports cars, the ninth, uh, 936 was great 935s I didn't like as much because of uh, they were quite bulky in certain ways, a lot of power, and so on. It didn't really match to a nice package of harmony. It wasn't there. Uh, you remember? Yeah, yeah. And you probably feel the same about that. Mm. But um, a little episode, actually, of uh, starting Kailami, nine hours, Anno Domini 71. I was on the left of standing start, three cars in the front row, Regazzoni with Ferrari, Jackie X with Ferrari in the middle, and me on the left with my two-liter Chevron. And lots of people. And on the start, it was still flag start. I didn't know where the starter was. I looked for the flag and I couldn't see anybody. And I looked right, I looked left, and I couldn't see anyone. There were people. And I thought, Jackie might know where he is. And I looked at him, and he looked left, and I looked left, and everybody took off. That <laughs> 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 was quite annoying. You should do a but, book. Uh, you should do a book. I'll help you with that. <laughs> I will, honestly, I will. Uh, Andrew. Uh, could I ask, uh, if I may, all four of you, starting perhaps with Sterling, what they think of Formula One today and what you do to spice up the show? Well, Formula One today, for my mind, was a really, really good racing now. But uh, I think this business with fuel is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, Formula One should be the top of all racing. <coughs> And to make it a fuel economy run, which was done by Mobile many years ago, I think it's a waste of time. And I think it's a great shame because I think we potentially have a, a remarkable machines and drivers doing a jolly good job and, and good races as well. Me? Uh, I'm, yeah, I feel very, I think we all feel the same. The thing is, I think it's all very well to sort of show that we're doing our bit for, for the world at large, but somebody one day said, years ago when, the, when we were driving the Porsches with fuel, it, said, it was said that um, 
one flight of a jumbo across the Atlantic consumed the same amount of fuel as Formula One did in a whole season. So really, what the hell are we talking about? It's not really that much fuel. And I think if we're doing things to look as though we are conserving fuel is one thing, but I think to build all these engines and get the teams spending fortunes on it, much the same in sports cars, um, but I think it's just over the top and I think it's unnecessary. I mean, as I said earlier, we're there to race and for Formula One drivers, and you see people like the best, you know, like Lewis did earlier or certainly the end of last year, having to back off at Monaco because he didn't have enough fuel. Mm. I mean, it's just laughable. And I don't think the spectators should be expected to understand that. You shouldn't expect them to stand in the grandstands with a rule book or the regulations and going, I wonder why that car's going, oh, I see, he's got an electric engine. Oh, no, he's got a diesel. I don't understand that. They're there to be entertained. We're in, that's, we're in the entertainment business, so we should never overlook the people that come to watch it because without those people that come to watch racing, there is no racing. Yeah, plus I do not think that the stimulation from this development in sports cars, Formula Ones, whatever, really reaches the series, you know, the, the, all the cars on the roads. They have done a tremendous development, have gone through tremendous um, uh, successes of conserving fuel, they would have done exactly the same without racing. So it's not that we have to be spearheading sort of technical development in many ways. I think this happens parallel already in the companies. There are far more tests and scientific facilities. We just do what we now by regulations have to do for the racing. But um, it's really absolutely right what uh, all the colleagues said, unnecessary. And we confuse the issues here. So I wish we would back away a little bit and come back to normal racing. I mean, we had sometimes, we also had this certain amount of fuels, you know, for the, this was in the late 80s, and um, racing, and of course, then you slouched around in third and fourth gear only, mm. you know, and it was a joke. I thought, what is this? You know, one race after all, but, you know. If I'm, I'll just add on that, is that we did that in 19, the first race yeah. of the 956, was that when Joachim was in the team at Silverstone, and Ix and I, I, don't, I guess it was Jackie, qualified in a one minute 15, and uh, Peter Falk came up the morning of the race and said, uh, we've screwed up with the fuel calculations and you're gonna have to lap in one minute 22. And we cruised around in fourth and fifth gear the whole way. Meanwhile, there's 25,000 people going, what the hell's happening? We couldn't rev them, we were just going around, you know, John Wire would stay like a stifled fart, and that was it, you know, and there we were entertaining the public. Nevertheless, we went to Le Mans because of the way Porsche operate, and we came first, second, and third. But that day, we were seven seconds off the pace, and I don't think the public should have to put up with that. But we did that in style. It was good. <laughs> uh, Roma, your, your thoughts on uh, Andrew's original question? Yeah, I mean, is that is crazy, you know, that in endurance, to say fuel was always a part of the endurance race, we have to say. I'm sure on this time with uh, Norbert Singer, they were, they were always looking, you know, take care about what you do. Uh, but what is crazy now, it's uh, in our new car, we have even not, even it's not saving fuel. We have, if we speak about F1, because we have the same, let's say, rule. I was with Adrian Newey uh, in Silverstone on the pit, and speaking about us, now we have even not to save fuel. On the straight, we completely back off, and we just, we, we call it sailing, means we just roll, you know, on the straight and wait the corner. And we have to adapt our style lap after lap, because uh, we have to, to use a certain amount of fuel now, and uh, it's controlled by lap, so each lap we have to have the same fuel use, and each lap we have to adapt our driving style and sail more or less on the straight. So that's a complete different style, 
and uh, but we have to do it. It's on the regulation. It's the same in Formula One. So uh, it will happen, let's say in Le Mans. I'm sure at uh, 200 or 300 meters before the first chicane, we will just pack off, roll, and after break. And uh, that for sure for a driver, it's a lot of frustration because you know when you are 12 year old or 10 or whatever, we learn and we we always teach you. Okay. More you are on power, better is it. But now it's the opposite. <laughs> now you have to also to be intelligent. So it's uh, it's different. Okay, we've got time for one more resident, uh, Damien. Guys, you've you've talked about um, your favourite circuits. Between you, you've driven some of the greatest racing cars in history from every era. Can I put you on the spot and ask you uh, each of you, if push comes to shove, if you had to choose one car that was really special to you, which one would you choose? Well, for me, there's no, no doubt the 300 SLR Mercedes. I don't, think it <coughs> I don't think there's ever been a car that was that good, quite frankly, to drive. I mean, it was so, so reliable. And, uh, you know, it had to be the greatest car. The Porsche 962. I think the 291, the C291 of Mercedes, because it was light, it had a lot of power, and it was a fantastic car. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it uh, was the Porsche RS Spider when we won Sebring. Actually, the, the race uh, who spoke Derek, uh, it was a very light car. I think, you know, it's always a, a question about power and weight. And this one was not uh, crazy in terms of power, but it was a, we were able to beat all the sports cars with a very light car made by Norbert Singer, actually, who, who made the 956 or 962 30 years ago. Yeah, sure. That's crazy. Exactly. Okay, uh, we have to leave it there, ladies and gents. Uh, the panellists will be making their way down to the fireside corner, so if you could uh, not try to grab them on the way down there, because we have to have a very tight uh, schedule. Photographers, if you'd like to make your way down there as well to get uh, photographs, that would be great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please put your hands together for Roman Dumas, Jochen Maas, Derek Balance, and Sterling Moss. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Some chocolates. <laughs>